Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and South Asian Studies, hosted by Thara and Yarya out of Bombay, India. Back after a bit of a hiatus, we are going to be looking at some of the people of South Asia that this channel has thus far largely ignored. Colonial in India tends to mean British, but we are going to be talking about the Dutch in India. Caroline Stolt of Leiden University is going to talk to us about how a careerist Dutch colonial Mandarin found the time to compile an anthology on Vaishnava mythology while trying to get into his superior's good books. But you will have to listen to Caroline to find out whether he did in fact manage to do so. Good morning. Good morning. Um, thank you for doing this uh, for the New Books Network, and it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you. Um, so, just to start off with, could you tell our listeners something about yourself and your academic career to date? Well, my name is Caroline Stolte. I'm based at Leiden University right now. Um, and this project has perhaps been a little peculiar in the sense that it's, um, I wrote it while doing my dissertation. Uh, but it's not my actual PhD. Uh, this is a side project that got incredibly out of hand. <laughs> I've been working on it for about five, six years. And, um, well, as you can see, it just came out. And hopefully my PhD will follow suit uh, in a couple of months. <laughs> okay, so what's the project all about? And uh, what's your doctoral research about? Um well, my doctoral research, uh, I was trained as an historian and a South Asianist. Uh, so I did degrees in both. I'm very much an historian, but that's how I also received training in the relevant languages, which is something that has been incredibly helpful on this project. Um, so my PhD is about, is a study of Pan-Asianist, um, ideas and ideologies, um, in South Asia. Uh, so, my broad interest is definitely with the, the traffic and the circulation of ideas and networks of information exchange that goes for this, this book we're discussing uh, as well as my PhD. Um, but for the book, which is part of the Dutch Sources on South Asia series, um, I very much looked at the 17th century, um, yeah, Dutch East India Company uh, participation in, in these larger networks of information exchange. So the project itself, you know, you mentioned that it evolved from your doctoral research. So how did this thing evolve? I mean, how did you get started on it or ah. stumble upon? <laughs> <laughs> this started much, much earlier. Uh, in 2007, uh, my professor, Jos Gommans, had been looking for um, this rather mysterious manuscript that only a few people had been um, writing about uh, in the 19, sort of 1930s up to the 1970s. 
Uh, this was a manuscript by an East India Company's servant by the name of Philip Angel. And he had been a painter in Leiden who, <laughs> interestingly, uh, was a contemporary of Rembrandt. Um, I'm pretty sure he also uh, knew Rembrandt, which is at least what my research suggests. Um, but like Rembrandt, he had a taste for the finer things in life, um, like living the good life, but didn't have the talent to back it up. So he got into debt massively and finally saw himself forced to enlist with the Dutch East India Company, um, well, probably to physically evade his creditors, but also to make money to send back to the Netherlands, um, which is what he proceeded to do. And his career, as it progressed from um, Batavia and through Persia, India, etc., uh, that is very much the part of his life uh, that I'm looking at in the book. Um, but the manuscript, which is at the center of this um, uh, of this story, was never published. It was plagiarized, it entered the Dutch book market, um, but it was never published. And the original at present rests in um, a British monastery, uh, sorry, a, a Belgian monastery in Postel. It's um, a monastery that at present doesn't admit researchers, which is something we're very sad about. Uh, but so, um, to come back to how it started, in 2007, Jos Schomans was able to trace a copy of this manuscript, which was actually held in Leiden. Because a, um, a Leiden professor of etymology, um, Piet Pot, had made a copy from this monastery in Belgium in 1962, and had left it in um, the KITLV which is the Dutch Center for Southeast Asian and Caribbean Studies. Uh, it's, um, it's not the best copy in the world. It's uh, silver dioxide. Uh, it's not completely, well, it's not, not as easily readable as the original would be. Um, but I managed to transcribe the whole thing uh, with very few holes left, or at least I hope so. Um, and the illustrations um, got reproduced, well, I'm actually very happy with the result. So this is the copy we've been working with. And um, I worked on this manuscript for Jos Schoemans for about six months. I worked with it in Paris with uh, Ines Supanov at the École des Auditudes en Sciences Sociales. And um, eventually I graduated my MA uh, on this study of the manuscript. But it was sort of... Um, it felt like it wasn't finished yet. Uh, this is a manuscript that people have been working on and off um, on for uh, a number of years. And what it really needed was a proper English translation and to make this accessible for further research. Because this manuscript really became an important part of what was known in Europe uh, about Indian religion um, in the 16, well, 1670s to around 1720, and it sort of became the gold standard. It was plagiarized in some of the very popular Dutch 17th century editions on uh, on India. So it's actually a very important manuscript, and it should be accessible to researchers worldwide, which is why we decided to do a source publication. And that is the result that we're talking about at present.
Um, before we go on to manuscript, uh, you mentioned that someone made a copy of it in 1962 from the monastery. So, but you say they don't really admit researchers. So, how did this happen? Ah, so yeah, this is 50 years ago by now, and um, the last librarian, especially, uh, well, apparently, was a little bit more lenient uh, <laughs> towards the academic world. The present librarian uh, is not. You can visit the manuscript though. Uh, it's part of the monastery tour. Uh, you get to see their library and their manuscript collection. And um, the manuscript is held in a glass cage. Um, it has one page open, which right now is the, um, uh, the Rama Avatara. <laughs> so you can see one of the illustrations. Uh, but sadly, um, they don't admit researchers to actually go there. Uh, they won't take it out of the case. Uh, you can't look at the full manuscript, sadly. Um, hopefully in future a new librarian might arrive who would be more receptive to our um, requests and one day I, I still dream of you know holding the thing in my hands <laughs> I'm sure the book will be an adequate substitute so just tell me what's the manuscript about the manuscript itself details the yes. Avatar's official um, it does so well, it's um, it's a fairly accurate uh, Dutch translation, which is part of sort of the, the, the mystery of the whole research project of parts of the uh, Bhagavata Purana and Harivamsha Purana. Um, it details some of the avatars uh, quite, well, summarily, uh, only a couple of folios in the manuscript. There's two exceptional avatars, which are those of Rama and especially that of Krishna, which are... Um, which form the, the bigger part of the manuscript. The Krishna Avatara, for instance, is, well, a good 80 folios long, which is almost a third of the manuscript itself, um, and really details parts of the uh, Mahabharata. It's, it's really sort of as, as broad as you can make the story. And that has also been one of the keys to sort of unlocking the mystery of this manuscript, uh, because this disproportionate attention to the Krishna Avatara um, is not that strange when you look at the manuscript's um, location of origin, which is Surat in Gujarat. And the popularity of the Krishna myths in Gujarat, as well as sort of the, the revival that these stories underwent uh, in uh, the 16th and 17th century, actually, well, sort of reconfirm the manuscript location of origin and this is further reinforced by the use of a lot of um, Gujarati terms especially in the Krishna Avatara there's names of uh, plants, trees um, geographical places uh, from Gujarat um, So how would you say that this actually fits in with other you know contemporary writing about India in the Dutch tradition. I mean, this is a very, it's a religious manuscript. It's not really an anthropological record. I mean, it's not a sociological observation. It's definitely not a very political tract. So how would you contextualize it? Ah, um, well, there's two ways of contextualizing it, uh, really. Um, personally, I think it is hugely inadequate to only look at what the Dutch were writing on Indian religion at the time, because really this took place in a larger environment where a lot of people were curious about uh, Indian religious texts. 
And the first point I would make is that this was not limited at all to European trading companies. I mean, uh, you have at the same time this manuscript craze going on um, at the Mughal court uh, in provincial Mughal studios, etc. So it's really um, Persian, Portuguese, uh, Dutch, um, later also, obviously, British, Danish, etc. Um, what I've mainly looked at uh, in the book is, well, to a smaller extent, the Persian translations of texts that were going on at the same time. Um, but even more so Portuguese and Dutch uh, translation works, uh, texts, uh, generation, information exchange, etc. And if you look at what Portuguese Jesuit missionaries in particular and Dutch East India Company officials were curious about, then the ten avatars of Vishnu keep resurfacing. And I found this fascinating um, in various locations from uh, Goa all the way down south to Malabar. And um, people are fascinated by these stories. It's these different incarnations of Vishnu that sort of speak to the imagination. And um, there's, well, this starts in the, in, in the 16th century as I, I sort of trace this particular form of, um, uh, of knowledge through time and really doesn't stop at all at any point in the early modern period. People really are fascinated about this. And as you see these stories entering European book markets um, in anything from Kircher's uh, uh, really famous Shina uh, Illustrata up to Alfred Dapper, um, Philippus Baldeus, these really popular 17th century editions on Asia, the Ten Avatars of Vishnu are always there. They circulate in Jesuit letters, uh, they appear in these published volumes, but people really are fascinated by them. So this was, you know, something like colonial forms of knowledge, or uh, was it, you know, just like plain curiosity? I mean, how connected was this to, I don't know, the, the drive for imperial expansion? I'm so sorry, the connection is quite bad. Could you repeat the question? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, uh, what I was just saying was that, um, it's uh, how, I mean, is this kind of connected to what uh, Bernard Cohen calls the, you know, colonial forms of knowledge or the colonial knowledge project? I mean, uh, was this just, you know, plain curiosity, the curiosity about the East? I mean, uh, was this kind of, you know, tied to the drive for imperial expansion? Ah, um, well, there's various motives that one might discern. Um, for the Portuguese Jesuits, it was very, very specific. Um, this knowledge generation of local religions was meant to facilitate uh, the mission. Um, I talk about the various missionary strategies that the uh, Portuguese Jesuits had in uh, in the first chapter of the book. And these texts were taken as tools for conversion. If you had the knowledge of these religions, you could also refute them and deliver arguments on why, well, uh, to speak sort of with the imperial mission, uh, they were wrong and the Portuguese were right, so to say. Um, for the Dutch, it was not true to that extent that it was 
meant only to, f- to facilitate the mission. Um, that was definitely not the case. If you look at the Dutch East India Company servants who actually collected this information, um, most of it, and I say this very carefully because, of course, there were other motives at play as well, um, but largely I would say they meant to publish it themselves. Mm-hmm. They, um, I'm sorry, the connection is very bad. Can you still hear me? Oh, oh yeah, definitely. Okay, I'm glad. So, um, yeah, as I was saying, for, for the Dutch, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of careful to say it was only for personal glory, but that was definitely a part of it. Um, they liked to publish these things under their own name, in sharp, sharp contrast to the Jesuits who wrote anonymously. Um, that's very interesting, but uh, going back to the larger framework of this manuscript, you mentioned that the book is part of a series, you know, volume five. So could you just tell us something about the series as a whole? Absolutely. The series as a whole is, um, well, it's called Dutch Sources on South Asia for a reason, uh, which is that it's meant to um, make accessible the wealth of Dutch archives um, on South Asia to researchers worldwide. Um, the first, there's five volumes out right now. Uh, the first three volumes are archival guides and are really meant um, to facilitate access uh, to these archives. They're translated inventories. The first volume details all the information on South Asia that might be found in the Dutch National Archives in The Hague. The second volume, um, which was done by Leonard Bess, and it really is an incredibly impressive feat, um, he has collected all the information on South Asia available in repositories other than the National Archives. So anything from university libraries to uh, church archives uh, to, well, the smaller collections in the provinces. uh, And he's collected all that in the second volume. And the third volume, uh, which is done by Leonard Bess and Geert Kreutzer, details all the the Dutch sources on South Asia, or at least... (laughs) There might be more that are found in the future, of course, but um, outside the Netherlands. So they've really looked at archives, um, well, everywhere uh, that hold these sources. And for the next couple of volumes, uh, which uh, my book is also part of, um, we are hoping to publish um, real source publications in the sense the Dutch text that are fully translated into modern English, uh, annotated, um, contextualized, introduced, and thus made available for um, further research. Um, I think in the New Books Network will be talking to Marcus about uh, Volume 4 in a couple of weeks' time, so oh, it'll nicely cool. complement us here. <laughs> Um, but uh, going back uh, to your book, um, this Philip Guy, you said he just worked with the East India Company, you know, maybe to evade his creditors, maybe to see a bit of the East. But uh, what kind of work would a painter have got with the East India Company? Ah, <laughs> well, <laughs> Philip Angel definitely did not enlist with the East India Company to paint. Uh, let's be sure of that. Um, he sailed to uh, Batavia with his wife. 
uh, they settled in Batavia and uh, initially he became uh, a clerk of sorts for the Council of the Indies. And apparently, I mean, he could read and write. He had had a proper uh, training in Leiden. Um, he was even a published author in Leiden. So he really had a proven track record of being able to write and speak well. And he did um, apparently quite well in Batavia. If you look at the, um, uh, those records uh, of him that still exist in uh, in the archives, uh, sort of the, um, the letters going back and forth between his superiors on how his career would take further shape, they're really quite happy with him. And um, sort of on the wings of his first two years in Batavia, he is made eventually, well, he's sent on a trading mission to Ceylon, uh, where he also leaves a favorable impression. And then he is given a bigger job, which is sort of the, uh, the beginning of the story of the manuscript, really, because he is made second in command on a trading mission to Persia. And this was an incredibly, I mean, this shows how well his work was valued uh, by the Dutch East India Company, because at, at that time, the mission to Persia was really quite important. The trading uh, firmans uh, that the East India Company had in Persia um, had to be renegotiated. So this mission was, was quite, quite crucial, and he received an important post in it. Uh, it's just uh, that he was fired from it very soon after arriving in Persia. But uh, he doesn't write about any of this. I mean, do we have any other records of him, you know, about his personal life? Um, we do and we don't. Um, sadly, uh, Philip Angel himself has left us very, very little. Uh, there's no, well, there's nothing in the way of uh, diaries, letters home or anything of that nature. Uh, I would love to have it, of course, but um, I can say with some confidence that it's really not there. However, um, this mission in Persia has a very, very extensive record, which was written by Cornelis Spilman. Uh, he would later rise very high in the East India Company ranks, but at the time he was, on, he was the secretary to the mission. And he has left a more extensive record of this mission than you would expect from just the mission's uh, chronicler. He has really talked about... Well, th this mission record talks also about the personal connections between members of the staff, what they did in their free time. Uh, and this yields, it actually gives some insight into uh, Philip Angel's uh, life and career as well. Uh, for instance, uh, the mission visits uh, Persepolis uh, to look at the ruins of the old palace, etc., uh, etc. Et and um, Apparently, this greatly impressed Spilman as a young secretary, and he and Philip Angel uh, explore the ruins uh, together. He writes about how Philip Angel does get out his um, his drawing gear and starts drawing pictures of the palaces and some of the archaeological remains nearby. So, this is sort of the first glimpse we get of Philip Angel not having fully abandoned painting in favor of, you know, being an East India Company uh, servant, but actually, you know, does this in his free time and likes to uh, make these drawings. And 
his drawing of the Palace of Darius has actually survived to this day. Yeah, but uh, we don't really, we can only just guess that his motives, you know, for making the manuscript well, apart from the fact that he was actually a painter. Um, it's mentioned here that he actually presents the manuscript to the company director, so was this some kind of careerist move? Well, um, <laughs> to answer that question, uh, I would have to go back a little bit to uh, what actually happened to Angel in Persia. Oh, sure. Um, because Angel arrived in Persia as part of this trading mission, uh, but as the cargo for the mission was unloaded, uh, it appeared that there was a lot more luggage than people were expecting. Uh, some 20 sacks more of it, in fact. And it turned out that Angel had set up um, a private trading business of sorts uh, to generate more cash income. And this was in the Dutch East India Company, as opposed, by the way, to the, to the British East India Company, uh, was really a big no-no. Uh, this was a fairly grave offense. And normally... To a certain extent, Dutch East India Company servants often got away with a little bit of private trade on the side. But this mission to Persia was incredibly sensitive. Uh, the directors in Persia, well, they had had a string of uh, bad directors, financial problems, uh, bad connections at the court. So really, um, they had to deal with this quite severely. So Angel was fi fired from the mission. Um, he still accompanied the mission uh, for quite a bit of the way, um, but his out was basically offered when uh, Shah Abbas II asked Angel yeah. to come to Isfahan, or rather to return to Isfahan, that had already been there by that time, and become a court painter. So what happens in Persia is that Angel completely abandons uh, his East India Company career to take up painting again and become a court painter to the Shah. So he sets up a local studio, actually with East India Company money, and gives painting classes to uh, the ladies of the court. He is commissioned by the Shah to make five small paintings, uh, which unfortunately do not survive. Uh, that would have been great, but they, uh, they sadly don't. Um, but in any case, he does quite well as a painter at the court. Uh, he gets paid a lot. He even becomes sort of an, a liaison again betwe between the court and the East India Company uh, because he's favored by the Shah and sort of has the Shah's ear. Um, but eventually, I mean, he falls out of favor with the local Dutch East India Company officials uh, who really resent uh, his being there and his position there. Uh, and eventually they petitioned the Shah to let Angel return to Batavia. Mm -hmm. And this is where it starts getting difficult for Philip Angel because he still has outstanding charges against him uh, for his private trading in the mission. So he is forced to sail back uh, from Bandrabas to Surat and from Surat uh, further down to eventually reach Batavia. But he has nothing. Uh, he has nothing to offer Batavia. Uh, and this manuscript is part of his way to ingratiate himself again in uh, the Dutch circles in Batavia. So this manuscript has a very explicit intention, which is to be a gift manuscript, one of these beautifully 
illustrated, nicely bound um, presents that were so popular in the 17th century and be presented to the Dutch East India Company uh, governor general as sort of a, uh, an apology of sorts, a mea culpa, like I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry, uh, are we friends again, uh, sort of thing. So the manuscript was definitely, in this case, uh, to sort of go back to one of your earlier questions, it was absolutely not um, sort of knowledge gathering for knowledge's sake. It had a very explicit intention and it had very little to do with the contents of the manuscript. <laughs> um, so was that attempt successful? Uh, he was successful, absolutely. I'm so glad you asked that. No, he, um, uh, the governor general accepted the manuscript um, and Angel received, well, it was not only that he was acquitted um, from his chargers uh, and received no further punishment, he was also given a job again with the Dutch East India Company. Okay, so the attempt worked. And uh, what about the actual preparation, the manuscript? Uh, you said you've seen the actual manuscript. Um, so what's it like? I mean, in terms of, you know, physical condition, how was it put together? I'm so sorry. Could you repeat the question? Oh, sure. Definitely. I was just wondering about the physical, you know, condition of the manuscript. I mean, you said you'd actually seen the original, you know, in the monastery. So, I mean, what was it like? How was it put together? You know, what were the materials used? Um, do we know whether he had any help, you know, in compiling everything? Or, like, was it just him? Ah, absolutely. Um, he definitely has helped in compiling it, uh, which is... For me, one of the most interesting parts of the story. Well, um, I should say from the outset that Angel spoke. It's not only that he didn't speak uh, Gujarati or Sanskrit. Um, he also didn't speak uh, Portuguese or um, sort of any of the languages that would have been common um, at that time. So he, there's no way he could have done the translation himself. Um, that was always, I mean, I don't think anyone ever thought that he would have done that himself. So it stands to reason that he had local help. But for a very long time, um, it was completely unclear what help that was. Uh, there were some authors in the past who suggested that it, there must have been a Portuguese intermediary translation. So that is basically only a Dutch manuscript uh, that is that has come through Portuguese and, and a sort of, you know, an Indian translation twice removed. Um, I hope I have shown uh, convincingly enough that this is not the case. It's a direct translation from, uh, uh, from an Indian manuscript, which is Gujarati in origin. And uh, in doing so, I was fortunately able to prove that Angel definitely had local help. Because um, as I was working on uh, the gift manuscript, which is sort of the final, the final version, right, the, the final draft, um, I was able to locate an earlier draft of the manuscript, which, um, of which the gift manuscript is a summary of sorts. This draft uh, really details, well, it, it really sort of betrays little things about the manuscript, how the manuscript came into being. And one thing that it does, and very importantly so, um, uh, I would add, it talks about Angel and his uh, local partner and how they visited uh, temples together and how they 
you know, saw the statues in the temples, how they sort of went uh, went from there. And all these suggestions of these little excursions um, uh, and also all the suggestions of this uh, of this partner have disappeared in the final version. But this draft uh, really shows that they collaborated on the manuscript, uh, uh, that they took their time doing so, visiting local temples, etc. Um, and, well, sort of gives us a glimpse of uh, a local mediator. So he was able to actually visit the local religious sites and, I don't know, sacred places. So there were no issues with him doing so. I mean, even if he was not a Hindu or something. Um. Well, this is a difficult one because uh, it's it's very hard to, you know, to sort of gauge how much he actually saw of these temples. He talks about the statues. These might as well have been statues outside, right? There's no proof that he actually entered the, the inner sanctum of any of these temples. But he talks quite extensively um, of the iconography of um, Ganesh and uh, Shiva Chandrasekhara in particular. So he definitely saw some local uh, Saivite sites. And he also talks about, I mean, this is very, very external, right? He talks about the physicality of the statues and what the different um, iconographical, iconographical, sorry, I can't speak anymore. <laughs> what the different iconography um, means. Uh, the necklace of Shiva, um, his matted hair, the moon in his hair. Um, just these little things. And he explains the meaning of it. So evidently he has seen the statues, but also had somebody explain uh, to him what the sort of the, not just what the iconography meant, but he also details uh, the mythology behind it. So he talks a little bit about how Ganesh came into being, um, how his father hacked off his head, etc., his mother poverty. Um, so he, and this is not text-based, and I think that's important. Uh, whereas the gift manuscript, in the end, is very much um, presented as a pure, and I say that in quotation marks, uh, a pure translation of an Indian text. This draft is much less text-based. Uh, it incorporates the full manuscript that eventually becomes the gift manuscript, um, but it also talks about these little excursions and uh, information that he gathered uh, and received locally. So it's much more, well, as you said at the outset, it's much more anthropological, I guess, than uh, the eventual manuscript. Um, just, just one more question. Uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, there was initial suspicion that this might be, you know, a translation twice removed from the Indian original, you know, like via Portuguese text. And then you also mentioned that it was actually, you know, in collaboration with local helpers. So now this was mostly in Gujarat. So just wondering, see, with the Portuguese and the Gujaratis, they had a long and, you know, consecrated history, so to speak. So what were, like, you know, Dutch-Portuguese relations around the time? What were Dutch-Gujarati relations, more importantly? Uh, well, we're looking at a period in time. Uh, the manuscript dates from 1658, when um, the Surat connection is actually uh, very, very important. Um, not just as sort of the, the gateway into Persia, 
but also as a as a port into itself. Um, the Dutch connection with yeah, so with Surat in particular, uh, it was very strong in the 19th, uh, sorry, in the in the 1650s uh, and on for the next few decades. Um, there are more instances. It's not just Philip Angel of um, uh, miniatures uh, and things like this being procured um, at Surat. Uh, Pauline Schurlier has some has done some work on this. So uh, for the period I'm looking at, this connection was actually uh, quite strong. Okay, um, so moving back to Philip, uh, what happened to the manuscript, you know, after it parted ways with the creator? I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? Oh, sure. Uh, moving back to Philip and his manuscript, you know, what happened to it after it kind of well parted ways with the creator? <laughs> um, well, it's probably important to mention that there are um, three versions of it um, in circulation. Of sorts. Uh, I've talked about the gift manuscript that was given to the Governor General, uh, right? Which is the manuscript that uh, that is in the source publication uh, we're talking about. I've talked about this earlier draft, which is much more telling because it's a little broader and it betrays a few things about um, how he actually operated on the ground. Uh, but there is another copy. So the plot thickens a little bit here. Um, there is one more copy which looks a lot like the gift manuscript, but has different uh, illustrations. And it has one appendix, uh, which also appears in uh, sort of the, the master copy, this earlier draft, uh, but didn't make it into the final uh, manuscript for the governor general. Uh, so aside from the draft, which was really meant as, as a draft, these two copies, the one that was presented to the Governor General and the one uh, with the different illustrations, those are the two copies that sort of entered circulation. And both of them have been plagiarized without ever mentioning Philip Angel's name. Um, and both have ended up in these popular, beautifully illustrated 17th century editions on India and the East. So the gift manuscript itself uh, for the Governor General was consulted by Philippus Baldeus uh, for his famous book on uh, on Asia. Uh, this was very possible uh, possible because there was a family connection there. Um, Baldeus was tutor to the children of uh, Rijkjof van Goens, who was connected to Karel Hartzink. Uh, so he was really Philippus uh, Baldeus was able to consult uh, Philip Angel's manuscript when it was still. Uh, in Asia. The second copy, the one with the different illustrations, uh, was sent to Europe uh, much, much earlier, where it came into the hands of a very famous collector of manuscripts, uh, Nicolaas Witsen. He was a notable person in Amsterdam at the time. And uh, through the collection of Nicolaas Witsen, Ulfer Dapper was able to consult it uh, for his Asia, uh, Asia. Uh, his famous work on uh, on Asia, uh, because Ulfer Dapper at the time, and this is sort of a nice parallel. And uh, what happened to Philip himself? Sorry? And uh, what happened to Philip himself? I'm sorry, the connection is terrible. 
Oh, that, uh, no problem. I was just wondering. Uh, so that we have the history of the manuscript here, and uh, then what happened to you know Philip himself? You mean what happened to the draft? Or? Uh, not the draft. Uh, to Philip. Oh, what happened to him personally? Yeah. Ah. Um. Well, <laughs> I'm afraid his uh, his end was not a very happy one. Um. Well, as I mentioned earlier, he did receive another job with the Dutch East India Company, yeah. um, again for the Council of the Indies. Um, but the next few years, he uh, he moves in and out of the uh, out of the archive as somebody who holds an administrative position, uh, like a low administrative position, for a year or so. Gets fired, finds another job, gets fired again. Um, he really was not not even like a, a little glimpse of his uh, former self. He um, eventually was declared bankrupt and his possessions were auctioned off uh, in a public auction, which is obviously a, a huge um, public embarrassment. Um, they even confiscated his painting gear, his brushes, uh, his paints. Um, so he died very soon afterwards. Um, completely destitute. Um, his wife had died in Batavia um, even before his trading mission to Persia. Um, his None of his children actually uh, survived either. Um, they, they, they had died before he, he even left. So he married locally once more, that is true, but his second wife also dies uh, within a year of marrying him. So yeah, sadly, basically, uh, what happens is that he buried two wives, uh, three children, and died, yeah, penniless in uh, in the East and was buried locally. Oh. So not a happy ending. Um, no, not at all, but I would assume this was typical of many of the period. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, um, moving on from uh, Philip and the manuscript, um, how does uh, you know this relate to the wider Dutch literature in the East? Sorry. Uh, moving on, you know, from Philip and the manuscript, uh, I mean, how does this work, you know, relate to the wider Dutch literature in India? I mean, what's the, what are the predominant themes in you know Dutch writing about well South Asia? Ah, so, um, well, as I said, the manuscript itself ended up in the editions of Baldeus and Dupper. Um, and this is, I think, key because Baldeus and Dupper themselves were uh, obviously translated uh, contemporarily and spread all over Europe, especially Baldeus' edi edition was translated into English in 1706, into German, um, et cetera, et cetera. So this manuscript gained a pretty wide audience uh, to, the, to the people who plagiarized it. Um, it holds a place in that sense, sort of in the larger literature on the East, um, absolutely. However, which what is interesting is that if you look at the manuscript itself, um, the earlier draft as well as the gift manuscript, it really is a translation of religious text. Um, the manuscript itself holds very few value judgments. Um, 
there's a little introduction by Angel's own hand, uh, which um, moves into sort of the, the East India Company discourse, uh, the missionary discourse that we are all familiar with, you know, about the, the dark errors of the heathens, et cetera, et cetera. But the manuscript itself has none of this. And in that sense, um, I mean, as much as this has a place in the wider corpus of uh, European literature um, on Asia from this period, um, in that sense, it's quite exceptional. And I should also mention in that context that as the manuscript um, was plagiarized, uh, republished, um, as illustrations were added, it was increasingly exoticized. So later authors who used the manuscript um, they inserted refutations, uh, polemics, um, sort of these more exoticizing uh, footnotes, illustrations with added palm trees, elephant slaves, etc., that none of which were in the original. So as this moves from um, a manuscript in Surat to well, sort of onto the book markets and then into these beautifully engraved editions, it becomes part of the literature in the sense that it also becomes exoticized. It becomes, well, it becomes more cliche. It starts to conform to this um, discourse that is already circulating on the book market at present. Um, but it didn't set out that way. Um, that's fascinating. Uh, do you think your future research uh, would focus on any of that? Um, I would love it to. Uh, <laughs> this is actually, um, well, this question can only be answered with, I'm not sure yet. Um, this project for now is, um, well, the book is here, which I'm very, very happy with. Um, the focus is now on finishing my PhD which is hopefully uh, a few months away from uh, also being done. And then, um, well, I have various things that I would love to pursue um, in future research. Uh, but this circulation of information, uh, this sort of, um, well, historical, um, philological uh, project is definitely something that I love doing and that I would love to do in future, absolutely. Um, you mentioned that there, there were some other themes that you would like to explore, so could you just talk about some of them? Obviously, you know, if that's something you're in a position to talk about. Um, well, the interesting thing is that um, in my PhD, uh, on these sort of uh, Pan-Asian um, networks, this is very much sort of late 19th century, early 20th. And this book was, um, well, very, very firmly situated in the 17th century. Um, so, so far, I've always worked on South Asia. I've always worked on these sort of transnational uh, information networks, on uh, knowledge exchange, but in two very different periods. And I think one of the biggest questions for me right now is to figure out um, whether I'm going to pursue either of these periods further or uh, maybe take something in between or, um, well, I'm not sure yet, but I will definitely stick with this sort of history that I love doing, which is these, uh, yeah, transnational or transregional, uh, however you want to call it, um, networks of uh, information exchange, because that is something I'm deeply interested in.
Um, I'm sure, and that actually sounds fascinating. Um, we've taken a lot of your time now, um, so I won't really keep you any longer. But uh, thank you for having talked to the New Books Network, and it was a pleasure having you with us today. And obviously, we look forward to interviewing others from the series. Well, thank you so much for letting me ramble on for all this time. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much. The pleasure is all ours. Goodbye. Bye. So, Fox, an engaging account of the changing fortunes of a little-known colonial. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.